You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Bodker, and I'm with my good friends, Dr. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health, and Dr. Mark Kissler, a doctor at the University of Colorado at the hospital. This is an absolute miracle. I think this is the third time together we have been together. That's right. I, this is, I feel like we're, we're, we're like, we're like all blood brothers. I mean, clearly you two are, <laughs> but I might be. Yeah, actually, actually we are. Yeah. <laughs> so you guys really are. I'm the, I'm the one of you. So I feel it. I feel it in my heart. So how's it going guys? <laughs> good, good. good. We're uh, doing great. Hanging in there. Uh, yes. It's good to see you guys. Again. It's, good, it's great to see you guys. And I am absolutely, utterly mentally exhausted. Yeah. Dealing, I believe it. Dealing I with this it. stuff. Like, I, yeah. I, it's just been so hard. I was talking to one of my coworkers and he just sat on this chair. So we had a big event. It was out, so outside, everywhere masks. It was a huge success for that. We're really excited just that everybody took it seriously. But before it, just thinking the anticipation mm-hmm. of how many people were going to show up and just this, like, he looked at me and he's like, I'm just mentally absolutely exhausted. Like I just, I just, he's, he's up at night because he, he wants to do the, make the best decisions and, and play it safe, but yet do our job. And it's just complicated so we're just, yeah. it just makes everything so tiring, really. Right. And still provide the kind of, I had a really good conversation with a good friend of mine over the weekend about just the types of needs that people have right now, the social needs, you know, yeah. and that, that are like, it's super important to be able to, to connect right now. So if you're one of the people who's supporting, you know, that, <laughs> or who is trying to create environments in which people can do that safely, mm-hmm. uh, it's super tough, mm-hmm. super tough. Yeah. And you could see that there was a longing. I mean, we had, it was really for us a huge success because we didn't have nearly as big of a group as we normally do, which we expected. However, just the amount of people wanting to connect with people, you could see there was, mm-hmm. there was like this deep desire, like we're excited, we're here, and they were exchanging their Snapchat usernames, whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not I on Snapchat, right? <laughs> what? Are you on Snapchat, Mark? No, I'm not. I'm Steven, not. are you on Snapchat? Nope. Yeah. <laughs> right, so I have no clue. Cool. So yeah, Snapchat, TikTok, whatever, whatever okay. it is. It's so, uh, but anyway, just this idea of it just being exhausting and it's really hard. I, I don't even know. Honestly, I have no idea how our numbers are dropping in the US. So I do know in, in a large, because everybody takes it so seriously. However, just reopening us and you know, our, mm-hmm. our first event last week was already an exposure. And like our very first mm-hmm. event, that was the bad news. The good news is all our student leaders immediately went from, hey, we can do this. This is fun. No big deal to, oh my gosh, this is a serious reality. So we hit, we hit the ground running. All of our leaders take it very seriously. And we've had our first exposure last Sunday. And then the consequence out of exposure, we just found out a couple of days with another one. So it, we're just a small little drop in the bucket. No, it could just be of circumstances, but it's just like, this is mind boggling how we've even made it this far with the, in, in, uh, this article. Uh, I know it feels like I'm joking, but I loved this entire article. The science behind campus coronavirus outbreaks. Do we need science for this? I mean, do I, I mean, sure, I, I, I get it. But maybe you just need to join me come some Friday night on the hill in Boulder. The hill. This is a place where everybody like hangs out and parties and hear the amazingly loud music and screaming until four in the morning. Oh, yeah. Everybody having the time of their life. Like, it's just different than a regular community. So people are, I'm like, sure. The science is great, but it's, uh, I, whatever. Okay. There, there are times when anecdote can, can get you part of the way. Yeah, totally. totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so that's my tangent. That's my, that's my riff. That's my exhaustion, but I'm excited to be here on a Monday. It is a Monday. It's not Wednesday. We're now <laughs> switching to Monday and big news. This is episode 40. 
Wow. Did you guys know you're going to like oh, last yeah. this long? It's, it's kind of like a, a fullness we've, we've yeah. gone through. Yeah. Yeah. We are, we are all <laughs> together. All three of us are in, in, incorporating a midlife crisis right now. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's what we are 40. Like. We are 40. So we're well. struggling. So anyway, we're at episode 40. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, it's been awesome to hang with you since March. We hope to continue this for a long time. And I have reviews. Keep them coming. Another one from Erica M15. We mentioned her last, last week, but didn't wasn't able to, to mention what she said. Thanks so much for this podcast, she says. It helps me keep perspective the actual status of COVID. I'm pregnant with twins, so we are still trying to isolate as much as we can without going crazy with our other two small, active, extroverted boys. Man. God bless you. The COVID fatigue that you mentioned on the last podcast hit home. We are struggling with telling friends. We are not comfortable doing certain things and just cannot wait for this all to be over. Thanks for keeping it real, man. I know that the temptation to want to take off a mask, to like hard to say, keep away from the fence from the backyard. You just feel like this bad person, but it's hard. It's tough times, but thank you for that yeah. review. Keep them coming. We could always yeah, use and all the best with the twins. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. All twins. the best with the twins. That's exciting. With, our, with, with two other ones. And didn't she say yeah, boys? That's gr- awesome. Right. That's fundamentally <laughs> crazy. So, so. It's, it, I can imagine it would be very busy. Oh uh, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I wish you the best. Always need support, financial support, patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. Here's what we're trying to do. I have, but we need about six hundred more dollars flat to get everything covered. I want to push this one time, just sixty people, ten dollars. That's wiped away. We are done, and then we can rely on just our, our regular Patreon benefactors to keep it going. The subscriptions, last six hundred dollar push. If you if you have it, ten dollars, sixty people, that'd be awesome. Thank you so much for all of you to donate. Oh yeah, the one person who cannot donate anymore is Paige. So you're excluded. <laughs> Thank you so much for all you've given. You are excluded from this entire request. So you are out. So thank you. Thank you so much, Paige. Okay, so uh, maintenance checklist. I gave it a couple weeks ago on my LTR podcast, Living the Real. Man, if you're in, in this mo- in this moment of constantly going crazy and chaos and order, I know for us, we have our we get our house together, and then three days later, it looks like we did nothing. Like it just absolutely is destroyed. And uh, I have a little good cheat sheet of how to really get get from this crazy loop of chaos and order and just stay in that maintenance mode. And right now, I think we need that more than anything when we have so much energy being spent on other things right now. Like, how do I educate my kids at home, online, all this kind of stuff? It's complicated. So check it out at livingthereal.com slash maintenance checklist. Download that. That's a sweet little cheat sheet on how you can get your life into a better rhythm. So let's get going in the news. We have lots to talk about. First thing I just saw before we started, Hong Kong researchers report first known COVID-19 reinfection. So I guess there's always been kind of this idea, that, the, but this is the first really, I guess, true one. Back in March, this person was infected, went to Europe, was reinfected. So what does this mean? Start with you, Stephen. Is this anything new? What, what, is there anything to conclude about this? Yeah, so it's, it's an important finding for sure because it definitely shows i mean as as convincingly as i i i'm i'm convinced based on what i've seen from from the data that that they've really done their homework and verified that these were two separate infections and so it says that there's there's at least a possibility that some people can get reinfected with covid as as quickly as 4 months apart now that doesn't necessarily mean and I, and i think that it probably doesn't mean that that the duration of immunity for covid is 4 months the the immune response is of course this incredibly complex thing and people mount 
different levels of response and the duration of immunity varies from person to person, depending on how effective that response is and that sort of thing. So it doesn't necessarily mean that that everybody's immunity is going to decline that quickly. It could, but I, I don't think that that's probably the case, at least not based on the evidence that we've seen yet. So so I think it's another useful piece of information. It's not entirely unexpected. We yeah. know that coronavirus immunity probably wanes over time anyway. It was just a question of for how long. So I think this is probably the first of many sort of examples of this kind of finding that we're going to come across. But again, it's just just one case so far. Yeah. And so now we got to do the hard work of figuring out just sort of what that whole distribution is and and how long immunity actually lasts. Okay. Sounds good. Mark, anything to add to that? No, that sounds great. So this was a great another head, headline. Trump says FDA is expanding access to COVID treatment with plasma. So just a week or two ago, we talked about how we saw Russia. It was two weeks ago. We looked at Russia in the, in, in the, in the expediting of the vaccine and all the implications and maybe some of what, what they're trying to say and how we're talking in comparison to the U.S. and how we're trying to keep our I's dotted, our T's crossed. Now, I'm concerned here. Is this, are we starting to reach that precipice or is this something a little bit different when it comes to plasma? Yeah, I think this is definitely different. So we have been using convalescent plasma, so plasma from individuals who have contracted and then recovered from COVID, really from pretty early on. And the idea, again, is that it's sort of a way of inducing an immunity, but it's not an immune response from your own body. It's somebody else's antibodies that you give directly to the person. It's generally super well tolerated. Uh, the major risks of this are just the same risks that you get with getting blood anyway, which now nowadays are very low risk. And we've been using it in clinical trial settings. And there was, uh, and so we've been using it just quite a bit in the hospital. What I suspect this is, and I'll have to look a little bit more deeply is what it looks like on this FDA press release is that they were doing an analysis of some of these preliminary studies. So they were looking and seeing mortality differences in patients who get the convalescent plasma and patients who don't. And it was so favorable that even though we haven't kind of completely gone through the arc, they think that this is beneficial and should be in wider circulation. So this seems to me to be kind of the appropriate march of you know trying something, keeping really close tabs on the influence and then monitoring or modifying our interventions based on that data downstream. Good. Okay. So anything else, Stephen, on that? We're good. Okay. Next thing. This is great. This is to be expected. I, I, I kind of in my mind thoughts would happen. COVID-19 data will once again be collected by CDC in a policy reversal from uh, what, for where was it at? The health services? What was it? Yep. For, the Four-letter acronym that starts with an H. I'm sorry, yeah, I should know this. <laughs> so, so be, epidemiologist. Be but they're not the people who normally collect <laughs> yeah. the data, so that's why. I, <laughs> yeah, it's so, yeah. so yeah, so a big reversal going back to the CDC to be expected. In the end, it's complicated. I was talking with you guys and joking, and I'm like, oh yeah, here, you know what? I got the newest Excel sheet on Microsoft. It's awesome. It just like res. I have these sweet pivot tables. Send me the information. I'll crunch the data and send it your way, right? So go. it's a little more complicated than that. I think we just realized that. So the CDC, it's back in their hands and they're working on a, a quote, new technology to expedite their own findings, which is great. I hope that I hope this is a huge success for them. One other thing, I totally forgot about this, guys. Back in May or April, I was excited because I'm a tech geek. And so Apple mm -hmm. and Google came together, which is kind of like a weird phenomenon for those two to come. They have fundamentally different approaches to privacy and that kind of stuff. So they came together for the sake of COVID to do contact tracing. I was super excited. And then I forgot about it. And then I'm like, hey, wait a minute. 
there's supposed to be some contact tracing stuff going on. So I'm a listen to this. I'm a tech geek, and I had to look all over searching where is this. After an hour of searching, I found it in my settings, an obscure place on iOS. Tried to activate it, and then I couldn't activate it because you need another app. So then I do research of what do you mean by another app. And then I realized, oh, states and federal governments have to make their own app to connect to this this process. And then realized only three states at this point in time have the app to even be used. So then I came like, what is going on? This to me, this was like a low hanging fruit. This could be helpful. Is this like a lack of technology? Or Stephen, I know you're talking about this. Like, why isn't this at the forefront of our minds? Especially if you were saying you guys weren't even, even talking about it that much lately. Is it? Why? Mm-hmm. Why is this? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a good point. I, I'd <laughs> forgotten about it to some extent yeah, has, too. Yeah. And uh, I, I think, I think part of what it comes down to is that in my understanding, the, the contact tracing technology builds upon the testing technology to do effective contact tracing. You have to know roughly when you got infected, roughly when you were infectious, these sorts of things. And right now our, our, our testing capacities really aren't at the point where we can reliably tell when a person first turned infectious. So I think that that really limits the utility of these kinds of things. And so it's maybe why different states haven't really invested in them much because there are other places that they really need to invest in much more basic sort of infection control strategies first. Yeah. But that's that's just my first first pass gloss over it. But yeah, it's, uh, it's super interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah I don't know. I, I'm curious because I remember we've talked a little bit about this, but not too in depth about privacy concerns related to contact yeah. tracing, particularly if there's some kind of, you know, an app on your phone that's monitoring who you're with yeah. and where you're at at all times and then sending that to a third party. I think there's some legitimate, you know, there's, there's room for legitimate critique sure. of that in the way that it could be used for this for other things and so i think i i don't know though i haven't heard that conversation very much and maybe i'm just not tuning it steven do you guys talk about that or what's the story there yeah absolutely very much and that's been sort of at the center and forefront of these questions anyway because in in many ways an app that like actually sort of kept a central repository of who you're in contact with at a given time, I think here would actually be illegal. And so, but there are, there are really creative ways for using these sort of like packets of signals where you can decentralize that process so that no one actually has that information, no one phone, nor any central repository. They're super interesting. The, the computer scientists have been working on exactly this for years for different applications in ways that you can actually really maintain the privacy of individuals and their contacts. And really the only information, it's basically trying to minimize the amount of information that's stored such that you get the, the minimum amount of information that you need to identify whether you've been exposed to someone who's been who's gotten COVID. And you can do that in such a way that you can't actually track individuals or who, who they've been in contact with on any sort of like individual basis. Super interesting. But I do think that probably the suspicion around these things might be contributing to why they haven't been implemented as well. I, I, because it, it, it certainly sounds really suspect, but I, I would have to go back and review in detail, but, but I've listened to a number of, of people who are working on these algorithms and have been, been convinced that, that, that privacy would be pretty safe with the strategies that they're proposing. Yeah. I- I was I had been reading a few things about it this morning and you know I see the example of other countries who tried to build a platform which actually kind of housed the data which then was suspect but it seems to be that Apple and Google have become like the the gold standard but like they, they don't and that, that's even part of their criticism that they don't use um, location based tracking so it's not as quite as precise they they really rely on Bluetooth which is so then it's on the device 
you know, it's, it's following Apple's kind of, you know, paradigm of like, look, it stays on the device. We don't put it in the cloud. It, it random keys. It seems as though, again, I'm not the expert. This is just an awesome resource that keeps privacy and also allows another level. But I'm just, I was mind blown. But it kind of makes sense if you were saying, Stephen, that if, if our, it's kind of like, Getting a brand new PlayStation when you can't even get food on the table, right? So it's uh, got to get the two, get, get on the food, food on the table to first, and then then we can get the luxury uh, uh, PlayStation. So let's get our our testing up a little bit more. I don't play video games. I don't even mind. I haven't played like in ten years. So don't just just PSA guys. Don't be like, dude, you say you're so busy, Matt. And you just said the word PlayStation. You know, like to me, you guys are just totally random. I can't play those games anymore. They have too many buttons, man. Like I was, I was. <laughs> I'm from the I'm from the 80s. Nintendo, A, B, up, down, right, left, yeah. and you just like you just you just master that. So this is what this is not about. So. Okay, let's continue. So another one I just wanted to to bring about. Oh no, coronavirus will not be eradicated with vaccination like smallpox. This is me. I know we've talked about this before. I, but the difference, I, just for my own well-being, how what is the difference between something like a vaccine for smallpox and then COVID? Because in my mind, I'm thinking. I've been drilled by you guys over and over. This is different than the flu. The flu mutates. Coronavirus is much more stable. So in my mind, I'm like, hey, stability means better vaccine, maybe like smallpox. So what is the difference that I can compare these two to understand why smallpox vaccine works and coronavirus may not have that efficacy for that length? So I think probably two things. I mean, one goes back to the duration of immunity. So it's not always the case, but I think Oftentimes, the the length of immunity from a vaccine follows to some extent the length of immunity that you get from natural infection. And we know that coronaviruses usually don't give you permanent immunity, so which is not the case, I believe, for smallpox, generally speaking. So you get a smallpox vaccine and you, you're immune to that for life. So you can basically immunize kids, uh, basically, as just part of their routine vaccinations when they're very young, and then that protects them for the rest of their life. It goes a really long way towards eliminating an illness. Another thing with the smallpox, I, I believe that it's it's generally only contagious after you've started showing a rash. So it's like very clear when you've been infected. And so there are also a lot of public health strategies that you can use to enhance the vaccination strategy to, to reduce the transmission of the illness, which also is, is not so much the case for COVID since it seems like you can spread disease before you actually know you're infected. So both of those things are not working in our favor for COVID and is why yeah why I'm, I'm doubtful that vaccination alone will, will lead to an eradication. Great. Next one, I love this one. U.S. will have third act of coronavirus, and it will likely be more pervasive. So, you guys, so we started with leveling the curve. It was a curve, right, uh, geometry. Then we went to a wave, so we went to the ocean. And now now we're at act. You guys, I love this one. Okay, there's a couple reasons why. Number one, I just thought, of, you know why I love this one? When you say a wave, yeah. I feel like an ocean. Yeah. A wave never ends. Yeah. It comes and it comes and yeah. it beats the heck out of you. An act feels like a play. It ends at some point right. in time. So I'm like, okay, we're at we're at we're approaching the third act. I feel like I'm I'm ready for <laughs> right. <laughs> this is to me. This is intermission. <laughs> Honestly, like I'm, I'm looking at articles. And I'm like, what are we going to talk about? Because it's it's a little bit of a dead time. We had to, we had our second act, you know, about a month ago, but we're seeing the, 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 the infections drop. Hopefully what I've read the news and maybe you can, you can talk back, see if this is inaccurate. There's an expectation that the death rate is going to drop here soon, probably dramatically for, for, for maybe next week or so. But there's an expectation that there's going to be another, you know, another rise. But I just have to say, we keep changing our terms, but I really, I'm voting that we all stay with this one. Right. This is the Matt, one. I Matt likes the theater on. metaphors. We'll keep that in mind. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> Yeah. It also makes me feel like it's fake. This is real. There's a lot of benefits, a lot of secondary yeah, gain. Yeah, so it makes yeah, me feel a little more lighthearted. Okay. 
Okay, so uh, D614G, some stupid coronavirus mutation, a new, less deadly strain. I just want to know, we talk about this all the time, and maybe not, but this, does this have any factor with the complexity as you as an epidemiologist looking at, hey, why, why Sweden reacts this way and Peru is, is reacting this way? I know there's lots of different reasons why different countries suffer differently or don't suffer at all. Is a mutation part of this equation or is that just kind of, at least for coronavirus, a very small piece? Yeah, so I think that mutations could potentially be playing a, a small role here somehow. I and mean, the, the, We're still trying to gather evidence on exactly this. There are a lot of, sort of genetic epidemiologists who are, are looking at exactly this mutation and ones like it. And there seems to be some, some evidence that maybe this mutation allows the virus to be a little bit more transmissible, maybe, but, it's, but so far the patterns that I've seen are also consistent with other factors driving driving the differences in prevalence that we see between these two and one maybe outcompeting the other so it's possible i'm definitely not saying that, that the mutations are are like completely inconsequential but it's it, it could be playing a role i think i think that what part of the resistance you're hearing in my voice is just that sort of similar to what we were talking about last time about the that we have this this real psychological desire to link what we eat with how we get infected with things basically that like we're, we're linking like swine flu with with the consumption yeah. of pork and now you know these same sorts of things that that's like a very that's a very sort of mentally sticky idea and i think that mutations sort of offer something similar right you think of every pandemic movie you've ever seen and the 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 change happens when the virus mutates right like that that is like the climax of the story right and so so absolutely these things are the third act exactly (laughs) (laughs) see this fits so perfectly right sorry yeah no exactly and so so it's true that 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 viruses mutate to make them more or less transmissible usually more transmissible but they also mutate to make them more or less severe clinically that happens absolutely but usually the consequence of those changes within a given virus that's already spreading are, are are usually pretty small relative to the basic public health sort of interventions that we that we do so so that's why i think that it's it could be real for sure but i don't think that it's necessarily as consequential as as many of the other things that will be coming down the pipeline so yep that sounds great good well one last thing before we head to our deep dive and talk about a few things that we've been experiencing lately again i love this concept i don't really love this concept but i'm intrigued by this concept of the long haulers and the covid and I'll, i'm going to follow this a little more closely in the coming weeks uh, I won't say much. I just another article I'll put in the show notes about so many people suffering from mild symptoms, just really mild symptoms, but then having extreme fatigue, heart racing, forgetfulness, these kind of things for long, for months on end, up to 21, 23 weeks after the infection. So more of a, just a PSA that if anybody's suffering from this, just to get checked out. I know that I also read in the article that oftentimes these people will get antibody tests and report negative. So it makes it even more complicated. The reason why it kind of hit home for me is my dad, I was just on a, a FaceTime with him and my family, and he was talking about trying to mow the lawn and just being really fatigued way more than usual. We can barely even mow, mow the lawn. And all of a sudden, this article struck me. I'm like, Dad, you know, just I, I have no idea whether it's even possible you could have got COVID in a mild way and that you're suffering some long-term effects. You know, I have no idea. But it's hard. It's, everything's complicated. My dad, they live in southern Missouri. It's 95, 98 degrees with 98% humidity and, and mowing incredibly long. And they're, and they're older, right? So it could be just the circumstances of the environment, so many different things. But just wanted to do that PSA. If you're feeling that, get checked out. Who knows what it could be? And I'm sure down the road we'll have more answers as 
we kind of explore this kind of new terrain. Yeah. And probably a good idea, just putting my doctor hat on, you know, for a second that there's often in a time like this, we do what's called, we have what's called an availability bias. So like we think about COVID all the time, we're talking about COVID all the time. And so then we attribute a lot of our symptoms or, you know, think that it may be related to COVID because of that. But of course there's other things going on. We've seen, especially in certain places, reduced number of contacts with healthcare because people are worried about COVID, but there may be something else going on that's totally unrelated, but that also merits getting checked out. And so, you know, want to make sure people feel safe coming in when they feel like they need to, that coming into the hospital, coming into the clinic is a safe thing to do. And it's important to not forget that, you know, sometimes you just need to get checked out. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to get my physical soon. And th- and thanks for just ro- ruining my excuse for everything. I've been blaming COVID for everything. Yeah, my well. bad temper, my overweightness, <laughs> every- everything has just been COVID. But now you just, yeah, you just messed everything up, Mark. <laughs> hey, Mark, can you report? I know one thing. We had a question yeah. from Deborah about yeah. vitamin D. Yeah. Like, so the question was, you know, d- does this help the immune response? Is this something we should be doing as a preventive measure? What did you find out? Yeah. So I, I was interested in this. So there's been some conversation from early in the pandemic, and there's actually been some limited amount of data from long ago that perhaps vitamin D is related to acute respiratory infections, and there's some connection there. So when I think about vitamin D, vitamin D is one of our macronutrients that's really important that we... I tend to think of it mostly in, in terms of bone health and our calcium metabolism. And so vitamin D is something that you can get from dietary sources. A lot of milk and orange juice is supplemented these days. You can get it from oily fish. Um, so like salmon in particular is one of the big sources. You can get a little bit from eggs. and But most, most of our vitamin D actually comes from sun exposure and the uh, conversion of cholesterol in our skin into vitamin D and then down the chain into forms that are usable to help your intestines hold on to the calcium that you eat. And so the main mechanism, you know, the main kind of pathway we think about it is in this calcium metabolism, but there has been a little bit of data and a little bit of signal in terms of acute respiratory infections. And of course, given the global pandemic, people have been turning to that and saying, well, is there any relationship to COVID-19? There's This question can be sliced a lot of different ways. I think that's really one of the things about it that's interesting to me. And so there's a good, I can send it to you. There's a good comment in the Lancet that was published on August 3rd for their September issue. It's it's the Lancet Endocrinology Journal, where the authors kind of do a very brief commentary on what's been done so far in terms of vitamin D and COVID research. And okay. it does seem there's at least hypotheses that the vitamin D may have an effect on the immune system, both in the early viremic stages. So the early stages when you have a lot of virus floating around and it's in your bloodstream, as well as the later hyperinflammatory stages. We've talked about those two stages and kind of the one, two punch, you know, before where you have a viremic stage that causes a lot of the typical symptoms of an acute viral infection. Then you have this hyperinflammatory stage later. That's why we're now standard practice using dexamethasone in the sicker patients who have that hyperinflammation. We're using elevated uh, anticoagulation protocols because people tend to get blood clots in the hypercoagulable phase. So there's definitely this kind of bimodal or two, you know, at least two kind of physiologic responses to a COVID infection. And some of the hypotheses seem to say that vitamin D may have a beneficial effect in each of those. 
Now, we, anytime we're talking about nutritional stuff, uh, often the signal is going to be a little bit lower. So the signal of vitamin, what vitamin D does in this hyperinflammatory phase is often going to be out, overshadowed by something like dexamethasone that has a much higher, you know, kind of effect size. And so when we're talking about the good that vitamin D can do and, and the importance of vitamin D, we're thinking a lot on sort of a populational epidemiologic level. There's some people who think maybe it can confer some resistance to severe infection. And that, that information is coming from a couple places. So there have been some studies. They did a, a meta-analysis that hasn't been peer-reviewed yet. So, you know, gosh, it's in preprint right now. A meta-analysis of a bunch of studies over, I, th I think, over a decade. Yeah, 2007 to 2020 took a bunch of randomized controlled trials looking at vitamin D and acute respiratory infections. And they found some protective effects of vitamin D with acute respiratory infections, but it was what they called modest size and substantial heterogeneity, which essentially means all this, a lot of the studies said different things, had conflicting information. You know, some said yes, some said no. And the, regardless, the effect size, when you lumped all that data together, was not super big. There's also been some, so another way to slice the data is to look at epidemiologically what's going on. So one of the things that some researchers have done is looked in Europe at countries that are known to have higher rates of vitamin D in the population and some that are having lower, and then overlaid the COVID mortality data. And there has been a little bit of a signal there too. So the hypothesis is in a country with lower baseline rates of vitamin D populationally, maybe we'll have higher mortality. And that seems to be, there. there does seem to be some signal there. So that's a different way of slicing you know, slicing data is looking at it. And then the other way, I mean, there's lots more ways, but one thing that these researchers propose that I think is a really interesting idea would be doing a large scale supplementation with a control group and doing a prospective randomized control trial and saying, okay, we're going to get, you know, a huge number of patients and give half of randomize them and half of them vitamin D supplementation and half of them not, and then see over time, what percentage of each of those groups gets COVID and gets severe complications from that. The big take-home point, what people are going to want to know is, okay, that's all good and fine, but should I be getting more vitamin D and should I be taking vitamin D? Everything that I've been able to see mm -hmm. has recommended nothing more than the typical recommended daily allowance of vitamin D. So if you're getting your typical recommended daily dose, that's it. And it's not one of these things where we think that, and sometimes we can get into trouble, especially with nutritional interventions where we think, well, if a little bit's good, then a lot must be great. But vitamin yeah. D is a fat-soluble vitamin, so your body doesn't get rid of it in the same way that it gets rid of water-soluble. And you can get hypervitaminosis D, you can get overdosed. And so you don't want uh, to be going out to the pharmacy and getting vitamin D supplements and just taking a ton of those because you could get sick. Yeah. And so the recommended daily allowance in the United States is about 600 to 800 international units a day. We get most of that, especially in the summer months, we get that mostly just from routine sun exposure. You know, experts do not recommend tanning beds, you know, or things like that to get more vitamin D and like hyper supplementation could be dangerous. But I think there's lots of compelling health reasons to have a diet that's rich in, you know, like these oily fish and omega threes for other reasons. I think that's a good idea. And generally they, the thought is that you can, most people can get enough of vitamin D just kind of in your daily life and your, your sunlight. And we don't, unless you have other risk factors for vitamin D deficiency, 
it's not something that's generally recommended to check. Like your primary care doctor doesn't usually check vitamin D levels um, okay. unless you're in, a, in a, a population. Like if you're homebound or if you're older than 70 or if you have some other risk factors to low vitamin D, then it might be worth checking. Absolutely. But otherwise, it's mostly just a matter of making sure that you get a healthy amount, which is what's been recommended you know, up until this point. Hugely helpful. Now, not to go down this rabbit hole just for a second, I want to throw a question back your way. Now we're kind of in the vitamin domain. Sure. So we're in like naturopath and this kind of stuff. Yeah, and yeah. so, so my mother-in-law, 80s, like if I were to say, hey, let's, and I could have asked this question back in March when I was actually, we were still first starting out. She's in her 80s. What should she be taking or what could, like, now this is a good segue to talking about masks because we're going to talk about the idea of probability and possibility in mm-hmm. some sense. Like we're looking at like uh, what, what's a good probable thing or series of things that maybe my mother-in-law could take just to to help to, to you know to help fight the edge if she were to get it. Is there anything? I mean, vitamin D. Clear. You said that seventies, maybe eighties, taking a vitamin D supplement might be, ben, you know, might have might have some beneficial or yeah. at least the benefit would outweigh. The, and that's risk. for osteoporosis. So that's for the other th- reasons okay. that those individuals would take vitamin D to begin with. So this, there's okay. none of the data has high enough resolution at this point to say these. This is kind of the cocktail of things that you should be taking yeah. to prevent a severe case of COVID. If we, you know, we don't, we just don't have that yeah. type of data right now, and so there wouldn't be anything okay. that I would recommend from that standpoint. Okay. What I would recommend would be routine healthcare maintenance, which in you know an 80 year old woman would include you know, osteoporosis prevention and consideration of things like that, among lots of other things. And so it's good, you know, it's a good moment. I think anytime we're talking about this stuff, it's a good moment to just plug some of the basic population level health stuff. And so, you know, obesity is actually a risk factor for low vitamin D. And, and I think that, you know, we're again, just as we don't want to not go to the doctor because of COVID, we don't want to forget that there's other important, you know, routine age appropriate cancer screening, you know, routine vaccinations, things like that, that are going to be just generally helpful and generally accepted. And just because we're in it, extraordinary time doesn't mean that all of those things need to go away necessarily. And again, you may disagree. We'll move on to the next thing to, we're talking about masks here a little bit and just talk about the bigger complexity of this all. But you know, in my mind, I'm like, now is a great time to get some screen done because I feel like we're in between these two realities, you know, the second act, the third act, if you're already kind of worried in general, there's no better time than right now to, if you need some screening, I'm, I'm booking my, my physical because I'm 42 and I just want to go. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's a great time to do it, uh, before the winter hits. So yeah, I think that's reasonable um, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's get into this. So let's talk about face masks. We've talked about this before. It's been a crazy complicated reality in my world. It's one thing to talk about in the cerebral fashion down here in my dungeon of a basement with you guys, but then to actually go to work and just deal with people who are all over with hesitancy and then feeling this kind of like almost scarlet letter written over on my face of like somehow I have I have an issue or fear. This has just been hard. And, and, and just trying to get understanding what on earth is going on with this strong hesitancy for, May, for face masks. What have you guys been experiencing? What, what's on your guys' thoughts and minds? Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm really interested to hear kind of what you guys have been seeing. I, I think that this is likely... And one of the things that interests me about this in terms of having the conversation is I think this is likely a microcosm of a lot of what we see in terms of how do we have conversations around issues um, related to COVID? And then broadly, how has COVID kind of exposed these these differences in how do I obtain data that I trust? How do I obtain opinions that I trust in our culture? And so there's, you know, this is like a tiny microcosm of like, but it's like a thread that you pull on and you get to a bigger societal 
issues. And, and largely, I think there's, especially in some places, what I've heard is this, this feeling of sort of a despair at finding, being able to discern the truth. Yeah. So one of the things, you know, there was, there's, there's been conversations about, or there's a news article, okay, about a, a sheriff, I think in Florida, who had outlawed face masks in his jurisdiction, uh, citing concerns about safety and, you know, something like that, and not, not wanting people to have their identities obscured when they come into the sheriff's department. And, and what I found was there was most interesting about that was the rationale, which was that, well, you can find, he, he said in this article, he was quoted as saying, you can find doctors who have goodwill on both sides who say that masks are good and that masks are harmful or that masks are effective and masks are ineffective. And in a setting, in a scenario in which people are saying both things, then how does one discern what's real? And, and I think that now, so that to me is the question underneath that's really worth talking about. Um, Cause we can talk all day about, you know, and we can go back and forth about the data on masks and, and this and that, and the way that it's part of kind of a broader paradigm about prevention and when is it appropriate? When is it not necessary? And things like that. That being said, I think there's, there's this underlying question of like, is it even possible to come to a sort of, sort of understanding, you know, and mutual agreement about that. And so, so I think that one of the things that I've seen is a feeling sort of, of, of despair of the ability to find uh, a common truth. Sometimes it's around face masks. Most often it's around all sorts of things, you know, COVID in general. And I think there's a lot of fatigue out there just from the number of voices, you know, being conscious that we, we are also some of those, you know, but the number of voices that are out there and sort of the extreme flattening where like anybody can put up a video on YouTube, anybody can, you know, fire up, fire up a podcast, anybody can write an article. Not that that's a bad thing, but that flattening does have this effect of creating a huge sea of voices and a difficulty in kind of cutting through that. So those are kind of my, my, that's the, that's the prolegomena to our face, face mask talk that I just wanted to, you know, a little bit. Uh, We'll put that, uh, we'll put that word in the dictionary and define it in our show notes for you. Stephen, what have you, we can talk a little bit more because I think, well, I'm curious to talk about it too as a social phenomenon, but Stephen, is there anything before we dive into it that you've been talking about? No, I, I mean, I think, I think that's about it. It's just, there's, uh, I think you made an important sort of distinction. You brought up both risk and benefit and then also effectiveness and ineffectiveness, which I think are like slightly different things. And then I, I think in some, some cases might be, I don't know if they're necessarily conflated, but I think that oftentimes when people are talking about masks who disagree on them, one is speaking in terms of risks and benefits and one is speaking in terms of, of effectiveness and ineffectiveness. And that can make it really hard to find common ground unless those, those sorts of, unless those are very explicitly sort of accounted for. Yeah. So it's, I think it's, I think it's a real challenge. And so. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of these things that's, it's also revealing because I think it's often difficult for individuals on um, to understand the motivations or the hierarchy of goods that's at play with somebody who doesn't have their necessarily their same opinion about masks. Right. So for someone, there may be just like a very strong internal sense that, that the, the interruption of, interpersonal communication, the interruption of like, you know, visual feedback and communication of the feeling of closeness, of a constant reminder of an altered reality, that that's a really big, important thing. And those those are real tangible felt harms. And for other people, it seems that that seems 
less important or less, you know, less significant. And we say, well, I'm, I'm ordering my goods in this different way. And, and really I'm more worried about creating, you know, kind of super spreader scenarios or, or whatever. And, and that I can take, um, these harms, you know, which are, which are real harms, you know, not being able to see the face of the person you're talking to and not having the nuance of conversation and things like that, but I'm ordering it in a different way, you know, that has this, this kind of seductive sense that like, oh, well, we can just come to a, we can come to, we just have to debate this rationally. You know, we just have to have a conversation and somebody's going to be right and somebody's going to be wrong, you know. But what we're often seeing, I think, is people just get really, there's, you know, there's having fights about it or, you know, there's, there, there's all these conflicts and then there's shaming about if you're not wearing it or like you're wearing it in places where it's not really effective. And that, of course, also is, yeah. doesn't help you know that doesn't that that just creates more and more energy on this side of of the confusion as well and so i think that's a tricky yeah. tricky thing is you know you think you're entering into a conversation where we're like okay great well let's talk about let's talk about the reasons let's talk about the evidence let's talk about and and we very quickly end up you know really we're talking about these other things, you know, these, these felt yeah. certainties, you know, that we're arguing from. And I don't, I've been talking a lot. So I want to, I want to let you guys talk. The, the, the thought that I had is I've, I've been reading, I've been revisited a book that was from my narrative medicine days called On Dialogue by David Bohm, who's a scientist. And he talks about, he, he turns sort of his attention in this analysis. It's like a hundred page, but it's pretty dense. You know, it's, it's a good, good look. And he looks at dialogue as a phenomenon between people. And one of his fundamental premises is that dialogue itself is kind of a creative mode of relationship in which solutions, we often approach these, we often approach problems with like a very linear kind of hyper rational approach. And there's this way that dialogue opens up a ground for creative solutions that may not be there when we're approaching things as like these abstract problems. It's one of the things that I kind of like about the podcast yeah. medium, to be honest with you, is because we, you know, we we talk about evidence, we talk about data, but I I really do feel like it's in the dialogue that we have around those things that something else can happen. And similarly, you know, that's one of the big harms of this time. One of the big sacrifices that we have made that's very felt is that we've all been siloed even more, you know, from a very siloed pre-existing condition to a hyper siloed and kind of, you know, atomized existence where we're all looking at each other over Zoom, you know. And even as we've started to get back together and and see people again, it's hard to renew those rich dialogues and remember that that's actually a creative place and a place of like really important understanding and, and the ability to kind of move away from my fundamental assumptions and have a little bit of wiggle there as I am in dialogue with somebody and, and start and be one of the words he uses is, is a softening of my basic assumptions to allow for the other person just yeah. to be. You know, and I think that that's a pretty beautiful image of what what can go on, and and I don't think that that means that we abandon a search for reality, you know, or some some kind of common ground by any means. It's not it's not kind of abandoning it, abandoning it all to like, well, it's your opinion and my opinion, and that's all we have. What it is is it's a it's a mm, mode of yeah. discourse. It's a different way of approaching approaching that that's a little bit less. Yeah. This is why I love. 
like this is also part of my personality like personality tests like the disc profile the colby index myers-briggs strengths finder because what you just said is that truth is there but we don't obtain truth just by this abstraction of pursuing the truth. It comes from maybe another word is perspective. We have our own perspective by which we 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 pursue the truth. I I, I was just listening to a class yesterday by idea if you put your finger up in the air and look at it from above and twirl it in the in the air, you can see it going clockwise. But then if you actually bring it down below you and keep doing it, it's now counterclockwise. It's like this idea of looking through two different perspectives. One is clockwise. One is counterclockwise. And the, what am I getting to this? As I realized, I have a particular perspective of how I approach my life, and I'm starting to see this more and more through, I took this thing called the Colby Index, which helped me understand how I approach things, right? And and, and I just had a discussion with a good friend of mine who thinks very dif- differently about me, about masks. And we initially had a very difficult conversation on Thursday, but then Friday we came together and ended up being a wonderful conversation. And it all started with the big aha moment that he saw when I when I explained my perspective. When I when I I'm a guy who loves systems. In my disc profile, I'm a high C, which means I'm a high compliance. Like I really do love systems. I like I like obeying the law. I like I, and I see this with my eldest son, uh, Kieran. He, just yesterday, he got a, he got a Lego set out and it had instructions. And he loves he'll just sit there and read the instructions and go step by step. That's his favorite thing. I love manuals. I love reading them at night. I love instructions. I love these things. It gives me a sense of order and peace. It, the other the other part of this perspective is that because of that, it offers for me a lower sense of risk. I don't like risk. Like I'm risk adverse. adverse. So my greatest talent and strength to organizations, to myself, to my family is seeing what the risks are and how we can lower the risk. I'm not going to be maybe a high D on the disc profile, which actually is a high risk taker. Maybe a high, the, 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 that's the Steve Jobs, right? Those people who really cut through and take a lot of risk. So you can see where I'm going from my perspective. I see in my mind, my perspective risk before I even look at the science is a possibility to reduce the risk. So I'm on board. Now, now if there's science behind this, that's awesome, right? And so when I shed this with this person, he was like, oh, I'm like, that's why you think this way, right? So this was like a big moment to see in the perspective and seeing his perspective, is, which was really fundamentally different. It was like yours, what you were talking about, Mark, not yours, but you were talking about how his perspective was, well, one of them was, he doesn't like the idea that he has to be in front of tons of people and not see their faces and it really hurts him. And I realized for him, he is, so he's a priest. Uh, this, one, this one person I was meeting with, and, and, and for any parish, any priest, their, their, their kind of family is their congregation. That's their family. My family is my wife and my kids. Could I imagine if I came home every single night to my masked wife and my masked kids, how like that would just like, it would really frustrate me in a tremendous way. I don't have to do that, right? But but he has to. So it's a whole other perspective. And from that, he comes from that that perspective. So this idea, you you absolutely hit the nail on the head. It's opened my eyes. Yeah. And I and I think, you know, there's this funny, funny way in which, you know, that we think out of our we kind of think out out of these original assumptions and we think out, but our thoughts, the thoughts that we have are actually they act in the world, you know, in a in a pretty meaningful way. So like the way that you, Matt, you know, from your kind of your disc profile of whatever, you know, whatever it is that you're thinking that your thoughts are manifested in the way that you have relationships at work and, and in the way that you think about, you know, ordering your day and ordering your life, right? As soon as you're able to offer up to your own attention, those underlying assumptions mm-hmm. and kind of, and have that moment of, oh, I, I'm not, I'm not just seeing the thoughts themselves as being like, 
well, thoughts are just thoughts that, you know, that arise from the true me, but it's actually like, oh, that's actually my highly risk averse part of me that's speaking really loudly right now. And I can offer that up to my attention. Then I think it softens that a little bit enough for us to be able to receive somebody who's speaking from a different part of them. And, you know, if, again, we've talked about this you know, I, I don't know if we could talk about it enough, but we talked about it a lot, but that, that if, if there could be some good out of this, you know, the, the epidemiologists are not happy that this has happened. You know, nobody's happy that, that we're seeing the, and there are real measurable economic harms, interpersonal harms, in addition to COVID that have been going on. But if there's anything good that could come out, I think there's a sense of like a restoration in our commitment to, and like being better at having good dialogue within our society. And, you know, I don't think that's going to come from the top. I think that's got to come from us. Yeah. I know we're running a little long here, but one thing I want to end on, and this is, this is a second aha moment. And I give this to the elders who are listeners that even though we have perspectives, there is truth out there and we, and and where to look for it is really difficult when you're, cause you know, he sent me a video. I sent him a video to explain our different, and then it's like, you just, you, you gave me one media outlet. I gave you another media outlet pick your flavor, right? And so he had this idea of just, it's mm-hmm. complicated. Um, nobody, there's too many cognitive biases. Everybody has an agenda, so pick your flavor. So, and this is a deeply, deeply thoughtful individual who's saying this, deeply thoughtful. And so my biggest thing to him was, and this is this is how I work. This is me and my systemizing. Like, I feel uncomfortable when I can't apply a principle to everything in my life, I just can't do it. I still feel I feel really uncomfortable. I get uneasy if I if I if I if I feel like I'm wrestling between two different principles. So my thing was is just like I don't care whether you are if we're if we're going to wear a mask or not. I mean I do care, but in the end that's not the biggest issue. My biggest problem is that we have a bunch of people who look towards us as being leaders. And so as long as we do that, we need to make sure that we're integrity with how we think about one thing. We apply to this to the other camp. So. And in one context, it may be, I, I look at one area of my life in a very detailed fashion. I scrutinize it and I really hold people to account with that same kind of scrutiny. But this other part of my life, pick your flavor. It's too complicated. Those things don't work together. And when, you, when you're a leader, it's going gonna, it's gonna to chip away at our, at, our, at our credibility. So just calling this individual, like whatever it is that you were able to follow a principle and a series of thoughtful um, reflections that are integr- that that have integrity between the lives we straddle, and that was a big aha moment to him to be like, oh yeah, like I might be thinking one way here, and the other way I hold people to a whole other level of academic and intellectual ex- you know excellence that maybe not quietly as as on the other way, and I think for all I, that's my biggest encouragement. Whatever we land on, just allow it to be integrated with your entire life. That this idea of siloing is not beneficial to anyone, and we see it already with the extreme silos of our of our country. So it starts with ourselves. Be integrated, and then from that flows good uh, uh, conversations of integrity. I, I really think so, and it comes from the mode, the means, the vehicle is bring, knowing your perspective. And honestly, for me, this is who I am. I'm a high C. I like, so I'm going to take tests to know about myself because I'm a high C. I'm like, hey, show me, right? I don't need to know. Right. Even, even your, <laughs> even your kind of epistemological method that you apply yes. to yourself, 
is a result of who Absolutely. you are, right? And so your your way of self knowledge is is in part, and so I think, and just like you know, you don't you don't have to get like super wrapped up in that, but it's helpful to recognize that like that you that even the fact that you take it to the survey and the personality types and the Myers Briggs whatever, whereas like for you know for me who that those things help are helpful, but they're not kind of the core in terms of self understanding. And there's a lot more about like metaphor and things oh. like that. They're like helpful Absolutely. and that, that those sorts of things are, we think of them as neutral, but they're actually being shaped sort of just by, by who we are. And that's good. That's okay. Yeah. But if we can be attentive yeah. to that, then maybe we have a fighting chance at like listening to somebody else. Absolutely. Great in that. Awesome guys. I love the conversation about an hour in good work. It's Monday. Happy money to you. Have a great week. You who are listening, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back on Mondays now every week. I, I'm assuming Mark won't be with us next Monday, but if he is, it'll be a miracle and that'll be great. So if you want to get in contact with Steven, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-I-S-S-L-E-R on Twitter, if you want to talk to us, just reach out. Matt at livingthereal.com. I'll forward the message. How's it going? How's your engagement with your friends and your family? How is it How is it waning on you? We want to hear back. Also, you can support us $600 more. So we can be done with this. 60 people, $10 will be done. Thank you so much for all those of you who've contributed, especially Paige, that, that, who've been helped this podcast running. We will see you next week. Take care. Bye-bye.